everyone. I'm Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. You've reached another episode of Techspansive, so thanks for joining us. Today we thought we would jump into the, the news that we saw come out of Build this week, Microsoft's event that uh, went digital. So we'll talk a little bit about that news and then we'll uh, navigate to some of the news we've seen happen in the content world, a lot happening in that area. Yeah, so I attended a lot of the online uh, Build sessions and originally this was supposed to be a three-day event. Uh, in person, they made it a two-day uh, virtual event. Too many announcements to go over in detail, very, very packed uh, agenda, but I'll, I'll just share some of the highlights. Uh, a lot of uh, focus on Azure, far, far more focus on Azure than, say, Windows uh, as a, a client uh, operating system. Uh, a lot of focus on AI in the past. Um, Satya Nadella has uh, talked about the need for responsibility uh, and re a responsible approach to AI. Uh, this year, however, there was just far more of a focus on implementation. Microsoft announcing that it has built uh, what it is estimating, it hasn't done an official benchmark, I don't think, uh, to be the fifth most powerful supercomputer uh, in the world according to the rankings of such things. Uh, and it is dedicated to one task, which is running what it, Microsoft claims to be the most sophisticated uh, AI model uh, ever developed uh, with millions and millions of, of different parameters <clears throat> uh, that can be uh, tweaked for uh, various kinds of uh, machine learning tasks. Uh, there was a lot of focus on healthcare, uh, and uh, not surprisingly, given the current uh, global crisis. So uh, that was a lot of the story from kind of the, the server end. Uh, from the client end, uh, there uh, was um, a lot of focus on Teams. Teams, as we may have mentioned in the podcast uh, in the past, is the uh, fastest growing app in Microsoft history, it's really been a juggernaut for them. Uh, for those, anyone who may not be super familiar with Teams, it is a lot like Slack. Uh, however, it integrates video conferencing uh, a lot like Zoom. Um, and uh, there's a lot more to it. In fact, I would say that Teams is the app that Microsoft has kind of been trying to develop in some respects for for maybe decades. Uh, it not only serves as a hub uh, for all your office documents, but what became clear at Build is that uh, they are opening it up to citizen developers, in-house developers. Uh, they're working on the discoverability of apps within Teams, uh, and also many of Microsoft's um, uh, cloud uh, initiatives, being able to tie uh, directly into that uh, through Teams. So. So it's really touching uh, many, many elements of, uh, of the company. And um, there's a lot of focus on uh, open source uh, as well. Um, company moved to its next generation of supporting uh, Linux uh, within Windows, uh, something of particular interest to developers. And then uh, on somewhat of a personal note, um, they introduced a new app called Lists uh, that uh, 
I really like. I was not thrilled with uh, Microsoft's uh, to-do list app that it came out with uh, after retiring Wonderlist. Uh, but this is interesting. It, it's very similar to a number of uh, web apps uh, out there, such as Airtable and Notion. Um, they're basically just multi-column lists, uh, but they're live. So they're excellent for tracking the status of projects um, or uh, looking at uh, information in a range of, of ways because the views can be changed dynamically on, on the fly. Uh, and that should be coming um, as a standalone app uh, later this year, and as is the uh, the way of things Microsoft recently. It'll be available within Teams. It'll be available on the web. It'll be available on Android and iOS apps. Uh, so it just looks to be like a very solid uh, organizational tool that I, I think is going to be uh, broadly embraced um, and uh, very much in the... <clears throat> Uh, very, very much kind of in the spirit of Teams as a useful general tool uh, that, uh, that should have a very broad appeal. I think one of the things that we see a across a lot of companies is a push towards what these collaborative tools look like. So Microsoft obviously is, is investing significant amount of resources into building out Teams and making that the, the central hub. You already had Slack that, that had a foothold in that space and had had in in many ways revolutionized the way that we were doing corporate communication and and corporate um, collaboration. And now, as we've pushed to working remotely full time, and and uh, you've had this week, you've seen from another com a number of companies say that they will be remote forever indefinitely some say that uh, it will be a slow push but over time they'll move more to remote work so that collaboration coordination communication becomes even more important i think and you're you're seeing a lot of companies uh integrate more features into it now because how we use it and what we need from it has changed and so you're you're seeing that evolve but uh, even I saw this week, Facebook announced that their workplace has 5 million paid users up from 3 million mm. paid users from last uh, fall. Yeah, they've, a, uh, they've clearly had some credibility challenges with, with that app, but, but it's actually a, a pretty good app. I mean, if you take away all the, all the privacy and all the policy uh, issues around Facebook, uh, it's important to remember that it became popular because it was very usable, you know, and, and the utility works in, in the workplace as well. So it's a, it's a solid offering if you can get past who offers it. <laughs> well, I mean, and as we know, during these types of episodes, there's always a lot of innovation. I, I think you look back to, say, World War II, and a lot of innovation came out of the war efforts and other mm -hmm. changing dynamics around there. I think of things like Saran Wrap that were originally designed to protect airplanes as they were being transported from here to, to Europe. Yeah. And they, they were trying to protect against sea corrosion. And then uh, that was pivoted mm -hmm. to another application when the war efforts ended. It feels like I, I look at like 9-11 and uh, even the last major recession, and you didn't see, I would say, a lot of kind of innovative approaches coming out of um, 
of what happened. I mean, after 9-11, you, you saw a lot of technology deployed around air travel, but I wouldn't, I don't know that I would call any of it especially revolutionary. Well, I, I think that it, it did jumpstart a lot of the, um, you know, surveillance technology, yes. a lot of the smart camera technology, yes. face detection. Uh, so we, we have seen a lot of that, of course, I don't, you know, de- deployed unevenly. But. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure that I see that as necessarily good innovation i mean what remains to be seen how we'll use that i don't i don't dismiss that point i agree with that but it feels to me like we have seen a lot of like subtle innovation taking place right now as companies are are adding new features to existing products and they're and they're kind of tweaking it in real time it almost feels like we're part of a a giant hackathon where (laughs) We're, we're testing the tools and we're realizing, oh, that application doesn't work quite the way we need it to work. Well, okay, here, let's change this. Uh, obviously, a lot of it is around security, but you are so seeing new features roll out, uh, kind of new positionings happen. We talked last week about Google Meet becoming free to users and, and um, they announced that at the end of March, they had 5 million users. Now they have 50 million users. So that grew significantly over the last 60 days. It, just feels like companies are trying to make tools that make sense for the current environment. And it'll be interesting to see first, what do these tools remain in two years? What of them are we still using and how will they be used? Will we see entirely new use case scenarios come out of this, that we're going to start to use these tools in in new ways. Um, There's kind of the, what I'll call the, the first order need, which is we need to coordinate workforces that are distributed and dispersed geographically and and the next right. is hey how do we overcome you know how do we overcome some of the negative aspects of this i like that iterative effect so you and i have talked about how exhausting sometimes zoom calls can be are there ways we can overcome that are there things that we can do differently so it'd be interesting to see if if those things ever come to fruition in the next few years it's, it's, I, th- I think you, you touch on a couple of interesting uh, points. First is there's sort of this open question of to what extent do people go back into office environments? Um, I personally am uh, more on the side of, of believing that, uh, that, that while there may be more tolerance uh, toward working at home, there will still be strong demand for people to come into an office. And I, it's been really interesting to see how the various tech companies have responded with their own workforces uh, in terms of what they have learned, uh, what their plans are for, say, future facilities, right? And so uh, it's, been, it's been all over the map um, uh, with uh, companies like uh, Shopify and Twitter uh, saying, and, and Facebook too, uh, very much uh, uh, on, in the camp of, Hey, we're gonna we're gonna run with this. We're gonna let people work from home uh, for at least the next year, maybe indefinitely. We may even have a goal toward reaching a certain percentage of our workforce working at home. Uh, meanwhile, an interview in uh, Wired uh, this week with uh, Sundar uh, Pichai from uh, Google, saying that hey, you know they're going ahead and building this mega campus. Uh, in in California and investing in in real estate in New York uh, because they still see the need uh, for in-person collaboration. Um, And this is from a company that has uh, 
several hands, uh, has its hands in several projects uh, focused on, on remote collaboration. Um, I wonder, it's sort of more of a, almost like anthropology question or organizational behavior question, uh, you know, what, what becomes the impact when you have like a large groups of, of employees in the office and a large group outside the office? Because today, working at home in most cases, I, I, I think you're either in kind of a virtual company where the overwhelming majority of people are remote, you know, or maybe there aren't any facilities, generally smaller companies, uh, or you have, you know, a, uh, a group of kind of literally outsiders uh, who, who work from home and they're the exception for whatever reason. They're in places where there is no office or, uh, or whatever. Um, so what happens when it's kind of split evenly? Uh, does it become more egalitarian or, you know, do these camps develop? I, I think that will be, uh, that will be interesting to see having been on, on both sides of, uh, of, of that point in my work history. So. Well, and I, I think companies are going to use it to their advantage as well. And so they're going to mm -hmm. do it and implement it where it makes sense and where there's probably cost savings. So, you look at a lot of these tech companies, they're paying a locality premium to have workers in Silicon Valley. I, I think the number right. I saw from Facebook was they get a 16% living adjustment for being in the in Silicon Valley. Uh, arguably, that goes away when you're living in Bozeman, Montana. And so right. it could be a cost savings. Now, it will be interesting to see if it's a hit to productivity because then that cost savings is an offset. But uh, it will be interesting to see how this does. And, and to your point, you could really see cultural divides within organizations where some companies are, are very centered around working in a central location. We've talked about Apple on the podcast in recent weeks. They've got a beautiful facility that they built so that they could house all of their employees in one place. And when you've visited Apple in the past, you were running around to different buildings that are scattered yes. throughout Cupertino. And now you've got this giant uh, building where they can all be centrally located. Uh, it's hard to imagine that they're going to sublet space there for <laughs> somebody else anytime soon. Absolutely not, right. And so mm. uh, you, you got to believe that it is in their DNA to have everyone centrally located for at least some period. I, I think uh, this was also uh, an opportunity. This was, I think, a kind of a golden opportunity for VR. Uh, to to rise to the occasion, and yeah. we had heard so much about it for the past two years. Okay, it's getting there. It's ready. We're ready for collaboration. I've seen a number of demos of this app called Spatial, uh, which is it's actually more based on augmented reality, but it's a it's a very interesting collaborative horizontal application. And poof, nothing happened. Right? You would have thought if there was ever an occasion for that, that would serve as a catalyst to VR taking off, this would have been it. Uh, and, um, yeah. you know, we're, we're continuing to see investment in the space. Uh, Facebook uh, Oculus announcing a new enterprise version of its uh, VR headset and rumors that Apple is moving forward uh, with releasing, you know, whatever they're doing in a year or two. Uh, Magic Leap. Uh, getting an infusion of capital after it looked like they were really on the ropes. Uh, and yet, um, it, you know, it, it just didn't happen. 
for for whatever reason. I, I think that really speaks to how cumbersome it is. Yeah, and if this isn't the time to do VR <laughs> when we're all in front of our own devices and our own yeah. cameras, then you got to really wonder what would it take? I, I do agree with you completely. Like this seemed to really miss a, a massive opportunity. And clearly there's network effects. VR, right. if you're going to do VR interaction. Still expensive at high quality. Yeah. And, and if you're going to really take full advantage of it, you need to have everyone else in that, you know, if you think about creating a virtual meeting, you need other people right. in that space. Uh, but, you know, I think I think we find that it, maybe as much as we talk about it being immersive, maybe it isn't quite as immersive as we think. It's still exhausting like any other video. It's, it takes some amount of setup. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why everything is is working remotely the way it is today is because we've built cameras into our laptops and into our, mm -hmm. our uh, the bezels of our monitors. And so it's really right. easy to be a camera on organization by because you already have the technology there. This work from home environment right now would be drastically different if we hadn't built cameras into all of these devices. Oh, sure, sure. You wouldn't be doing camera on. You wouldn't do, be doing as much Zoom. It would be cumbersome to set it up. Already you see uh, massive sales for webcams. Webcam prices are through the roof. People are looking at other alternatives and, and how they can use, for example, Canon introduced uh, software. And we might have talked about this last week, but they mm -hmm. can take their DSLRs and make them webcam. So there's all of this technology right. that's that's uh, helping push it. And VR is a is a separate platform at the end of the day. You need dedicated hardware. You need to have everyone else take full advantage of it. You know, you're not going to be. It's maybe a little awkward for you to for you to be the first person to show up at the <laughs> at the meeting. And nobody VR wants and to be the first guy in the headset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, I I think to your point. The fact that it hasn't caught on now suggests that the the lead, the time is probably much longer than we anticipate. Despite all of the mm. announcements we've seen lately, it probably still feels uh, several years away. Mm. Well, um, you know, this was also a big week in terms of uh, content shopping. Uh, last week we talked about companies uh, going on M&A tears and uh, filling in pieces of their ecosystem uh, by buying uh, small uh, focus vendors. Uh, but a longer term trend that we have been uh, talking about on the podcast uh, is this, this quest for content. Uh, much of it traditionally has been the billions spent in original video programming by Netflix and uh, uh, Amazon, uh, or if you're Disney, just um, coalescing the uh, incredible value of, of your catalog uh, for for Disney Plus. Uh, but if you don't have, if you haven't been making that kind of investment, uh, then uh, you, you need to start uh, thinking about what you're going to do. So this has definitely been something that's hurt uh, Quibi uh, out of the gate, the, the dearth of uh, of content. Uh, back catalog, uh, we've seen stories that Apple, uh, which uh, started Apple TV with no back catalog, uh, is now shopping for content to try to flesh out that offering. Um, and it's interesting that, uh, to me, that uh, both of those services sort of started out at a price of about five bucks a month, uh, maybe compensating for their relative dearth of, of content, uh, but but 
ultimately that's not enough uh, for for a paid service, uh, especially when you know you're looking at something like Peacock that may be launching with an ad-supported tier uh, and all of the content assets of um, NBC Universal. Uh, and then, um, but but one thing that's relatively new is this new uh, open season on audio content. Uh, you know, we spoke, I think it was late last year, about Spotify buying uh, the Gimlet uh, podcast network and the Anchor podcast app uh, that, uh, that we use for distribution. Uh, and um, now uh, Spotify has signed uh, Joe Rogan, uh, one of, if not the top rated uh, podcast. And, um, Sean, you know, I was saying before uh, we, we started the podcast, it kind of reminds you a little bit of when um, uh, Sirius uh, Radio signed Howard Stern. You know, you've got this uh, major figure uh, from, you know, kind of the open airwaves and you're bringing them in as part of your network. Um, is that going to be enough of a, of a pull? It certainly was for Sirius, at least for some amount of time. Well, and I think what you you do if you're Spotify or Amazon or Apple or or even others that could enter this space, nothing will, could necessarily stop a Netflix from getting into this space. It would be sure, sure. very easy for them to move into the space. They're already probably on your phone or on your other devices, so they could easily start a, a podcast channel. And, uh, and they've got a lot of familiarity with understanding what people are listening to and watching and and uh, so I think you just keep adding content until until you get the right mix, and then you uh, and then you hope that you've got that the home run. You know you're going to pull over a lot of users with a Joe Rogan type acquisition, but it isn't enough to do it as a single acquisition. That's definitely the model you've seen from Spotify. It's about acquiring a, a number of brands and a number of celebrities, if you will that then draw the audiences with them. And, and you've got all of the major players here playing in, in kind of very unique ways. Bloomberg uh, had an article this week, talked about Audible as in talks to acquire celebrity podcasters and, and consider selling original shows individually. Amazon Music is looking to pre prepare for podcasts. Apple's been building out a back catalog, not for podcasts per se, but for, for Apple TV. Uh, trying to get the old TV shows. So they're all trying to build up these catalogs. And and ultimately, I think you see what Netflix has done successfully where it's original content. It's the HBO model of have something original that keeps people on the platform. And I, I actually love that idea uh, that you mentioned, Sean, of uh, Netflix or, or HBO or one of these producers of original content uh, getting into podcasts because there is a golden opportunity for them to launch podcasts based on these original shows that have millions of viewers. I mean, come on, how successful would a Stranger Things podcast be? It would be huge. Yeah, right? it would be um, huge. And, and, um, and I remember AM, AMC with the, the Talking Dead, right? Yeah. The show that they would, kind of the post show. Yeah. You know, you could easily do that in, in a podcast-like format. So. Yeah, I think of like a, a podcast that's popular in our household is Lore, and it's okay. uh, something we listen to whenever we do road trips. We'll just listen to episodes back to back for hours. We'll listen to it, and it's a, a great podcast series where it's storytelling and it's mm -hmm. historical in nature. They they take some 
like historical, you know, kind of horror or uh, mysterious things that happened in history and, and put it in kind of a podcast storyline. So it's, you know, stories about vampires and illnesses that spread throughout towns or magicians that were con men and other things like that. Wow. So they have a lot of different storylines. But, cool. but if it were a, if you had a kind of a, a sister series around even just one of the characters from Stranger mm. Things, I know all of my kids would be very into that. And so I, I think that there's a really interesting opportunity of extending those brands. You kind of think back to the old days where cartoons were extended into cereal and toys and other things. I mean, that used right. to be a big, big extension for, for cartoons was you make physical toys for it. Uh, you could argue that the extension for video content is audio content, and, and we haven't seen probably enough people do that. You, you do see podcast series that are built off of some of the, the series that are, that are taking place. If it's of a historical nature, you'll get kind of a more mm -hmm. in-depth podcast view of, you know, behind the scenes of what really happened in history. But uh, to your point, there's a, probably a lot of things that one could do. And, um, and maybe that's a contractual issue. Maybe you can't, they, right. this, the, they uh, want to reserve those rights or, yeah. you know, they emanate from the book rights, not the right. video rights. Yeah. Right. And the, and if the talent has been contracted for being an act, an actor, you know, and on the show and not necessarily a voice actor, mm -hmm. that, um, could be, you know, one of the inhibitors for that, but we might see, we might see more of that moving forward. When you mentioned Amazon uh, trying to get these celebrities to create podcasts, it reminded me of this story that we discussed uh, late last year, another related story late last year about Luminary Podcasts, uh, which was basically pursuing that model. Uh, they had done a fair amount of uh, advertising uh, and uh, they signed up uh, Trevor Noah, I remember, was one of them. Um, they uh, go to their website right now. Um, the show is a luminary original. Um, they had a, 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 a Lena Dunham. They had uh, something with um, uh, well, uh, well. And also from this week, we saw that John Krasanich, who had started Some Good News, a little YouTube show in the pandemic, sold it after a massive quote unquote massive bidding war to Viacom mm. CBS and he'll no longer host it apparently. So he's, he sold the oh. show to Viacom and he won't host it. But, um, it, you know, you've seen so, original content that was created in this current environment still selling. So maybe this is Rogan's exit strategy at some point. Yeah. Well, that's probably a good place to close it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Techspansive. Again, I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. <laughs>